Hello and welcome to the second Faber podcast of 2013. My name's George Miller, and my guest in this programme is novelist Nadim Aslam. Nadim appeared in an early Faber podcast back in 2009, when his previous novel, The Wasted Vigil, came out. That interview, about a book which A.S. Byatt described as unforgettable, tragic and beautifully written, is still available on the Faber website at faber.co.uk, and also on the Faber channel on iTunes and SoundCloud. Nadim and I met up again recently to talk about his new book, The Blind Man's Garden, set like its predecessor in Pakistan and Afghanistan in the wake of 9-11, and already garnering terrific reviews. Writing The Independent, Leila Sanai said of it, Once or twice a year, a book stuns me. Nadim Aslam's fourth novel, The Blind Man's Garden, has done just that. My expectations were high. Aslam has won a clutch of prizes. But the power of this extraordinary novel is still jarring. And James Lasden in The Guardian wrote, By any measure, The Blind Man's Garden is an impressive accomplishment, a gripping and moving piece of storytelling that gets the calamitous first act in the war on terror onto the page with grace, intelligence and rare authenticity. Whereas in The Wasted Vigil the focus was on foreign characters who'd come to Afghanistan, from Russia, America and Britain, in the new book, Aslam explores how a group of Pakistani characters experienced the onset of the war on terror. Naturally, war looms large in the book. When foster brothers Gio and Mikal volunteer to go into Afghanistan soon after the fighting begins, Aslam describes them as moving deeper and deeper towards the war, into the crosshairs of history. And when the minibus that's transporting them there, along with other men, gets within earshot of the tank shells and gunfire, Gio asks his companion, Do you hear it? Yes, Mikal replies. It's a battle, isn't it? Yes. It's the world, one of the other men says. The world sounds like this all the time. We just don't hear it. Then sometimes, in some places, we do. It's one of this novel's aims, it seems to me, to make those sounds of war audible to the reader and convey the many repercussions on the lives of ordinary people of decisions often taken continents away. While Mikal and Gio are venturing into Afghanistan, their father, Rohan, back in an increasingly radicalised and tolerant Pakistan, is having to contend with failing sight, the colours of his beloved garden gradually disappearing before his eyes. How not to ask for help, these days, he reflects, from others, from God, when it seems that one is surrounded by the destruction of the very idea of man. Before we began the interview, Nadim had been telling me that he also painted. So my first question was whether he thought the visual quality of his writing, which is finely attuned to the richness and diversity and colour and texture of the natural world, had characteristics in common with his paintings. That's a very good question. Painting for me is just another way of celebrating the visual. So I can't really speak in abstract terms about this, in that I paint a bird because I wish to understand that bird in as much detail as possible. So this is just my way of looking at a bird for three hours, or a bird wing, or the way its eye is round and it has a circle around it of skin, whether whether or not it has an eyelid, or the curve of the beak, as it were. So this is, uh, so I paint, I think, my, 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 the impulse, my primary impulse behind painting is that I wish to look with as much detail as possible. I take as much delight in looking at an apple as from eating it. 
so this is um why the book is called the blind man's garden and uh, the chap the main character in it is um losing his eyesight and um i thought it was important for me to go and talk to visually impaired people but by temperament and by character it is not easy for me to approach people and ask them something which might be difficult for them to answer i mean i am anxious when i ask someone about a scar on their hand that for all i know i'm i'm stirring up a very bad memory so i did attempt to go and talk to people who are visually impaired blind people um but in the end i couldn't bring myself to ask them in detail what it was like to maneuver through everyday life and so a year or so went by the book took four and a half years to write and a year went by and i was in a quandary because i just couldn't summon up enough courage to talk to someone uh, about it and so i thought let's do it ourselves so for the last 3 years that i was writing the novel for one week each i blindfolded myself 24/7 and i lived as someone who can't see of course i'm not saying that i was blind because at every single moment of those 24/7 that week i had the choice to take off the tape from my eyes and begin to see which real blind people don't don't but it did give me some idea of what physiologically happens i mean there are sentences in the novel which simply would not have been possible had i not blindfolded myself in that i say at one point that um he feels as though there's colored sand in his eyes he says that when i wish to remember the color red i would touch something warm and that is what happened to me when i was when my eyes were taped up i touched something warm by accident and my mind flooded with the color red and i thought and then i did it again deliberately a few hours later to see if it happened again and it did and uh, once i heard raining that it was rain so i opened the window and put up my hand out of the window to feel the rain and the first image that sprang in my mind was of the twinkling of stars because rain falling on the palm of your hand actually does that actually does remind you of that and that went into the novel and the extraordinary thing that the first time i did it the first so at the end of those 7 weeks of being sightless when i removed the tapes i was shocked because i was covered in bruises they were everywhere my face my hands my shoulders my stomach my shins and my hips uh because i had been bumping into things over the past 7 days and and i had forgotten that each time i bumped into something there was a possibility that 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 a mark had appeared on my body so it was so i had been accumulating bruises and then seeing them suddenly it was as though i had been assaulted without my being aware of it the second time i did it in the in the second year i was more intelligent than i was the first time i had done it and the third time i was quite possibly the most intelligent man on the planet because i had choreographed everything i drove nails into the floor in front of the cooker so i knew where to rest my feet to so i could cook safely by that time i knew that your feet are the soles of your feet are immensely sensitive that um thin soled shoes are better because i could actually tell the difference between carpet 
and floorboards. I could tell the difference between grass and mud, that kind of thing. But as I said, these are the things which a writer does purely as research, which you have to do. Uh, and I can't really explain why I feel the need to do it, and I really rather not examine it. There is, it is possible that some other writer would have approached the, the subject of blindness a different way. I'm only speaking about myself, and I actually love doing this, to actually be among the mud and, and just looking for gems that I can use. I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating experiment you describe. And I, I wonder how you were recording your sense impressions. Were you doing that in your memory or were you writing things down? I mean, I rem- remember in the book, at one point, Rohan has been writing all morning, but it hasn't been recording anything because he's, he's, there's no ink in the pen and he doesn't realise it. That's so it's right. sort of writing yeah. white. So how did, how did you record your impressions? That too happened. So as I said, that happened the first time. But I had then, by that, but by the second year, I had dictaphone and memory is quite good because it was a very intense experience. So it took me, I have to say, an entire year to unpack what I had gone through. It was a deeply, deeply intense, it's a very intense, and, and I think the traces of that, those three weeks, went into almost every character. Mikal, when he's tortured by the Americans, he's actually put into this black room, which is painted black, and he's having hallucinations, and he's having scary dreams, frightened. That happened to me. So even people who are not blind, the idea of helplessness, etc., etc., I think that must feed into what happens. Um, and, and, and were you at any stage sort of worried you'd gone too far? I mean, if you get to the stage of hallucinating, do you think, well, uh, I've taken research for this novel a bit too far and I'm actually in danger of losing, you know, losing track of what, I'm, what I set out to do? Or did you always stay on the, the side of sort of being able to observe your own... No, I know. It's a very good question, but again, nobody was making me do these things. And... Actually, Rohan couldn't end it. Rohan would have those hallucinations. You know, perhaps because he's, you know, he will, by the end of the book, he will be blind for the rest of his life because he's, he's not affluent, he can't afford the operations, etc., to have his eyes fixed. But the, the initial stages, he does, he, he is frightened of being without eyes, etc., etc. So, no, I had to go through it and I had given myself a week each year. So no, I had, no, absolutely. As I said, nobody was making me do it and it was, uh, it was important to go through it. It wasn't pleasant, I have to say, you know, it's, uh, it was, it was deeply frightening and I'm slightly claustrophobic as well. But, you know, it, um, it had to be done and, um, uh, but that's, I'd rather, um, I think that ultimately the reader, I would like the reader to just look at the text itself. I don't want this to become the thing that this guy spent. No, no, and not as a, I'm not saying that to you as an interviewer. I'm actually speaking to the readers now that uh, this doesn't matter. What I went through in order to write the book really isn't important. Have I brought something to the page? Does it work well on the page? Does my research, is it heavy-handed? Have I used it well? Because ultimately, 
it's an it's a novel. It's not a book about what a chap did um, uh, for three weeks. Yeah. This is a novel. And uh, is there a, a static pleasure here? Is is there historical awareness here? Is there political commitment here? So this is what I would like the reader to think. And uh, no amount of research, if it's presented to the reader in a ham-handed way, will actually convince the reader to actually continue with the novel. I mean, I'm guessing, Nadim, with a novel as complex and ambitious as this, it didn't have a single seed which germinated it. It, it, it originated in a variety of preoccupations and situations. Right. You're absolutely right. I mean, we've lived through an extraordinary decade, beginning with 9-11 and ending with the Arab Spring. Just think about it. Beginning with Muhammad Atta's suicide at one end and Muhammad al-Bazizi's suicide at the other end. Muhammad al-Bazizi was the Tunisian fruit seller who, who set himself on fire and his death in January 2011, exactly 10 years on, year-wise, sparked off the Arab Spring. And between that, we had the war on terror, the call to jihad. We had uh, the invasions of Afghanistan, Iraq, Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, the murder of Benazir Bhutto, the execution of Osama bin Laden, and this clash between an incomplete understanding of the East and an incomplete understanding of the West. If you go to Google and you type in Pakistan is, the four autofill choices you are given are evil, stupid, dangerous, a terrorist country. Type in America is, and the choices you are given are not the world, evil, not a country, but a business. So I wanted to write a novel which would hold as many of these things as possible without stopping becoming a novel. Writers don't tell you what to think, they tell you what to think about. So I wanted to bring you the complexity of this decade we have lived through and just try to see that what you thought had happened during the past decade, whether it squares with what this book says happened in the last, uh, I mean, how much of this did you know? How much of this did you not know? Etc. So that was the impulse. You're absolutely right. But that as a human being, perhaps, is my impulse. Anyway, uh, this is a very anti-modern thing to say. This is an anti, perhaps you could say that this, this is a very anti-21st century thing to say. I don't ever see myself as an individual, first of all, as a self, as it were. I am not unique in that my instinct is always to to say that I am someone's brother, I am someone's uncle, I am someone's son, I am someone's neighbor, I am someone's friend, I am someone's nephew, as it were. So I always begin with other people and come towards me. Modernity has taught us, no, 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 you are an individual, now move towards others. Perhaps it comes from coming from a large family, perhaps it comes... I don't know why that is. And I have never written a novel, this is my fourth novel, I have never written a novel in which there is only one viewpoint. And I never realized I was doing it. Even in my first novel, which I wrote when I was 23, there are about seven or eight viewpoints. There are seven or eight main characters. So I always bring in these individual stories and try to put them next to each other to see 
whether or not a spark jumps from one to the other or not, as it were. What you've just said has made me remember two things in the novel. The first, when you said Pakistan is and the United States is, at one point there's a quotation, I think it's from the Quran or that could be the Hadith, I can't remember, which says something along the lines of the, the end of the world will come when two opposing armies both share, share the same you know the, the same conviction of, of of their being right you can you can perhaps perhaps remember it exactly it's a saying of muhammad uh, the end of the world won't be until two armies have gone to war declaring an identical aim that that, that was one thing what you just said made me think about or what's at stake and the other is when um, two of the characters mikal and and geo are picked up by the Taliban, and it's really their first experience of war. They can hear the rumble, and it's it's close. And a man says to them, "That's this that's the noise. The that, like. Yes, that's what the world sounds like. It's the sound of battle. But this or is what the world sounds, and it's simply yes, we don't hear it. And I suppose those those things indicate to me how big the stakes are. You're talking about individuals and and love and their destinies and their families, but the stakes are really very big because of the historical forces against which they played out. And here we are sitting in London in a, a comfortable, affluent, you know, part of part of the West. But your book, it seems to me, says, but remember just what you know what, what is what is being played out uh, for real. Absolutely. I mean on at the beginning of chapter two I have this sentence that uh, the logic seems to be that there are no innocent people in a guilty nation. So on the one hand, we have Al-Qaeda who thinks it is okay to slaughter people because they are guilty, because their nations are guilty. And on the other hand, we have the United States thinking it is okay to kill hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq and Afghanistan just to get who they want. And you were saying that... um, we are sitting here in an affluent part of the West, in a comfortable part of the West. Of course, as we speak, President Obama is carrying out drone attacks over there in Pakistan. According to the latest figures which I have, which came out in September last year, September 2012, only one in 50 of these so-called surgical strikes is actually killing a militant. In other words, in order to kill two militants, they are killing 98 innocent Pakistani people. Now, if you remember the death of Trayvon Martin, who was this uh, young African-American boy who was mistaken for a robber and who was shot. Because I, I wept for him like any decent person would. And President Obama went on television and said, the fact of the matter is that if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon Martin. Now, this is not me taking anything away from dear Trayvon Martin's death. But I really would like to say to President Obama, dear Mr. President, if I had a son, he would look like one of those 98 people who you are killing over there in Pakistan. Trayvon Martin was killed on suspicion of being a burglar. These people are being killed on suspicion of being a terrorist. At best, at worst, they're just collateral damage. It doesn't matter. Is the novel a good way of getting across those things? Is it a better way than reportage or having a film camera on the ground or, or does it do something different? I'm a total believer in the validity of fiction, that fiction can tackle and at its best it can tackle the greatest subject because 
with non-fiction, you would make this statement and say, during the Zia regime in the 1980s in Pakistan, X number of people were tortured. And it depends on the kind of non-fiction it is. It isn't the job of, of this non-fiction writer to show the reader what it is like to be tortured. He or she is only interested in the number, unless it is a special kind of fiction where you actually show physiology. But even then, you can't really show how this guy's relatives feel, etc., etc. But fiction, what it can do is it can create a character from the ground up, tells you these are his fears, these are his loves, these are his childhood memories, this is what he was like at school, these are his, this is what the teachers thought of him, etc., etc. Then we take that person away, who seems to have more or less the same characteristic as a reader. He too was once a child, he too has a mother, he too has an uncle, he too uh, has a job, etc. Then we torture him. Then the reader will feel it. And it perhaps isn't really the non-fiction writer's job. It is perhaps fiction's job to actually show you. And not only that, you then create another person who is in love with person A. You give them as much flesh and blood and bone and membrane as you and I have. And then you have to take away person A will not only feel the pain of person A who is being tortured, will also feel the, the pain of person B who is saying, where is the person I love? We also feel that desperation, which nonfiction can't do, which is, or I think novel can do better. So what responsibilities does that place on you as a novelist, a novelist who's dealing with reality <clears throat> of, the, of the sort, you know, of, of someone being tortured, <clears throat> of the stakes being very high politically and presently? Yeah. I totally accept that there is responsibility on me. That as a fiction writer, I have to bring all my intelligence to my desk every day. All the meager amount of wisdom I have to my desk every day. If something isn't working, it is my job to go out and find out about it. Facts, figures, etc., etc. Be utterly responsible and sit down and then try to make these things. Is this what is happening in the torture chambers or these so-called black sites? Is this is what is happening in the madrasas? Is this storyline plausible? So I totally accept that responsibility. And so when, as, as novelist, it has happened in the past, it will happen again that you are giving Pakistan a bad name, you are giving Islam a bad name, you are anti-American, etc., etc. You know? When people say to me that you are giving Pakistan a bad name, you know, I say to them, my readership is in tens of thousands. You know, so fine. I don't accept this, but let's, let me agree with you that somebody who reads The Blind Man's Garden will come away with a horrible expression of, of Pakistan and Pakistanis. I don't believe this, but let me for a moment agree with this. That tens of thousands of people have been corrupted by me. Billions of people on this planet every day pick up a newspaper, switch on the radio, switch on the television, go to the internet and learn Osama bin Laden found in Pakistan, Benazir Bhutto murdered in Pakistan, the, the governor of Punjab slain because he wanted a change in the blasphemy laws of Pakistan, Daniel Pearl beheaded in Pakistan, 
every single day minorities being killed 10 women that is the figure we have 10 women every day being killed because of honor as it were that is the latest figure we have so let's go after these people who are writing these stories they are the ones with a bigger readership than me as it were who are giving Pakistan a bad name I'm just trying to highlight I'm just trying to articulate what the problems might be so and who are the people who are responsible for those fictions for those stories as it were you know meaning Pakistan's government Pakistan's elite Pakistan's rulers Pakistan's military Pakistan's intelligence services they are the ones who are giving Pakistan a bad name but so, but do you write nonetheless in the hope that your writing might change some minds might alter perceptions in some you know that it will have some practical outcomes as well as bringing aesthetic satisfaction and pleasure and, and understanding absolutely absolutely I do hope that someone who reads the blind man's garden walks away with a deeper understanding of what Pakistan is what Pakistan's troubles are and I am not one of those people I and I must very clearly state this who are in despair at, the, at what Pakistan is going through despair has to be earned I will spend my life trying to change things in Pakistan at the end evidence of my activities must be required by people I will present you with that evidence that I did this I failed I did this I failed I did this I failed year in year out then at the end of my life I have earned my despair in saying Pakistan is not a country worth saving then I can say it I cannot say this right now I have to give you the proof that I tried Pakistan is 65 years old can we look at what England was like at 65 years old can we look at what America was like when it was 65 years old Pakistan is a developing country it has the problems of a developing countries in Africa in Latin America over there in Asia it just so happens that some of Pakistan's problems have become linked with the security of Western cities therefore everything that happens in Pakistan which also happens in Venezuela which also happens in Nigeria which also happens in India it's an excuse to say Pakistan is a failed nation Pakistanis are evil Pakistanis are stupid Pakistan is a dangerous country etc etc so I can't accept this I was really admiring of the way layers of history are subtly brought to bear in the book whether that's a recollection of Tamerlane's forces crawling across a glacier at the end of the 14th century or a cache of Lee-Enfield rifles from before the First World War or a Soviet graveyard for planes which Mikhail comes across at one point these layers are, are, are everywhere really if you look for them they're, they're, they're around every corner or, or in every, every tool shed whatever. well yes I mean they are here if you look at um, history speaking to us from this building that, that we are sitting in in London so why would it be different over there in Asia and as a novelist I wish to connect with the past of my country that yes the Timberlands forces did crawl over the glaciers in Pakistan it's not, it's not that it's absent here I suppose I mean there's a, there's a demonstration at one point I think in Peshawar and 
the narrative voice, I think, says that, or perhaps as a character says, that perceived wrongs done in the ancient past are just as strongly felt, and perhaps more so, than um, things done by the Americans just a, you know, a couple of months before. That is what happens when a place is in turmoil. People are looking for explanations now and therefore, you know, sometimes frequently and perhaps frequently, they will alight on the wrong explanation. Of course, we mustn't romanticize. These things can be exploited by the bad elements within Pakistan. So, you know, you will highlight that at one point the West did that to us, at one point... You know, so it's a way of galvanizing the present. It's a, the kids in the madrasa I show you, you know, who are, who has, uh, uh, the word is that when they hear a story of injustice happening two centuries ago and they are shouting, help is on its way, help, like from the present into the past, help is on its way, as it were, you know. But it is important that we know history, but it is also important to know that it can be manipulated, what why are we remembering it, etc., etc.? Talking of the madrasa, there was a phrase which I wrote down because I thought it was, it was so wonderful. You talk about a madrasa being alive with voices murmuring like a honeycomb of warning and praise. And that just seems so <clears throat> pregnant with possibilities of, of all sorts, but, but essentially something which could, which could turn quite nasty. Yes, I mean, but if you look at the Quran, there are beautiful pages of praise and then there are very stern pages of uh, warning so it all alternates between those two so i was actually referring to that but but again the this goes this links in anything can be used if you wish to, to use it anything can be distorted anything can be you know interpreted uh, the way you wish to and that, that happens on both sides, doesn't it? There, there's, there's misperception and misinformation on, on the sides of the American interrogators and, and we see lots of misinformation on the, on the side of the, the militants in Pakistan yes, too. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things I was deeply interested in with this novel was that, uh, and also with my previous novel, The Wasted Vigil, I wanted to um, explore not only what it's like for Innocents to get caught up in the war and terror, with who Jiu and Mikala, they actually go to Afghanistan to help the civilians. They are not fighters. But this wasn't me dodging the issue, because any number of young men did go to Afghanistan to fight. They said, yes, this invasion is wrong, and that we would resist. So in the second half of the book, I do take you to a madrasa where these young men who were planning a siege of the Christian school, where some of the characters um, teach. So that was what I was trying to do. This wasn't me dodging the issue. I wanted to show you that it is possible to find people who were totally innocently caught, caught up in the war, but I'm just as interested in the psychology that says, yes, I wanted to fight the Americans, you know, and people who are admitting it as a with a sense of pride. Is that psychology, though, for you more difficult to access as a novelist than, than Gio who goes for, you know, to, to offer humanitarian help? He's a medical student. Is it easier for you to get into, inside his head 
than inside the um, the militants who who, see, who carry out the siege at the school. Well, I have visited madrasas in Pakistan, and um, I've spoken to any number of people. I didn't, so there is a spectrum of opinion in my head. So. Really, to make a character, again, I made a character like that in my previous novel, The Wasted Vigil. There's a man called Kasa, young boy called Kasa, who, who was a jihadi. A jihadi is no more difficult to, to imagine than a non-jihadi for me. You know, I should like to think that as a novelist, if I bring all my tools with me at, to my desk, and I referred to them earlier, my, my intelligence research, but no, it wasn't any difficult. I, I can enter into that mindset, yes. The, the lot of women in the book yes. is particularly tough, it seemed to me, and there was a, there was a moment which crystallised that. When Kabul falls to the Americans shortly after the invasion, the men in Afghanistan begin shaving off their beards. The women keep their burkas on and that just seems such a telling such a telling detail and it just said so much about expectations really for, for women and and just how dangerous it continued to be yeah yes absolutely um i mean Nahid, the heroine of the novel and mikal i have to say they are two of my favorite people that so far they are my favorite characters i've ever created but uh, Nahid, who's um who comes from a non-affluent background, who is socially insecure, etc., etc. I wanted to show her journey, as it were, if I can use that word. I wanted to show her development into a strong woman. But coming from when she does, she couldn't end up as a chief executive of a multinational company. She herself, has given her circumstances, her class background, becoming a school teacher is as far as her triumph for the time being is. She's also very young. And uh, so to actually chart that development, so coming from a, uh, being the daughter of a really superstitious woman, a woman who's frightened. I've noticed that uh, something about my writing, which is that when I was young, beginning with my first novel, when I, which I wrote when I was 23, all my characters were in their 50s and 60s, all the male, all the main characters were in the Middle Ages. And also in the second novel, of course, again, the main characters were a middle-aged couple. And to an extent, it's true of my third novel as well. But now that I'm older, I feel confident to actually bring in younger people and place them at the center of the story, and which is what I have done with The Blind Man's Garden. Because I think we underestimate the grief of the young. And I did not want to, when I was younger, to condescend to my own experience of being young. Because you are young and uh, for you are a new human being. And for 15, 16, 17 years of your life, you are within a family. And um, let's hope that you are given some moral, ethical uh, grounding and what existence on this planet is like for um, and should be like um, for some for uh, a decent human being but then you go out into the world and you meet this thing which at some point says to you there is a thing called corruption that you 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 don't have to follow the hard way through corruption you you can move into an easier life this is what happens to Mikal again and again that 
to uh, especially in the last third of the novel when he's in the desert with the American who he has imprisoned as it were and from whom he needs certain answers he's told again and again sell the American to us and leave and he says no I can't you know that a heroic life is possible and, and a noble life and a noble death is a possibility also uh, you would say that um, in holding on to the American he lets down Nahid once again in that that he could leave the American in the desert and rush back to Nahid who needs him but he doesn't do that if you know anything about Nahid you know that she will be disappointed that he abandoned the American in the desert that she too is young and she too is idealistic and she too has um, uh, a certain idea of what a moral life is and what an ethical life is and so uh, yeah. I was really struck in the book by the the beauty of the language you use to describe the garden and the natural world and the <clears throat> sensitivity to those things and juxtaposed with that natural beauty is the much more dangerous beauty of images the making of images in the book man-made images are always problematic or, or dangerous even, even, yes. even, even something like um, in the prison where, where Mikal is there are American children's pictures but they're American children's pictures of of basically the Taliban getting its you know ass kicked it's, that's, it's, it's, it's like that so was, was that a sort of juxtaposition you were at some level aware of? Yes I was absolutely it's um, it was intentional and um, but I I'm not sure how beautiful those images are of course and I think I have to refer you to my, to my earlier answer why I paint that the impulse behind all of that is is to observe with precision I'm not sure how beautiful those things are to say that a bird flies in a certain way and to find words which that a certain kind of woodpecker has an undulating flight now you find it's a beautiful image because not all birds have an undulating flight but Am I being beautiful or am I just telling you that, that that image is when converted into words? This set of words? Does that make sense? It's a yes, I, supp I suppose, going back to what you were saying about the painting, it's the, it's the ob observation, <clears throat> it's having the exactly. acuity of vision to, to see it mm -hmm. and capture it and, yeah. and produce it, isn't Absolutely. it? Yes. But, but with, 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 the, with the garden, I felt there was a beauty coming through that. If you describe a rose and you describe a scent and you describe its petals, you know, the element of beauty will enter into it because this is how we have been programmed to think of a rose. But I really once have to once again I have to say that I'm not sure how true it is to to say that now I do bring in these things that this book could be written without mentioning the rose. No, I think that might be the point, yeah. uh, that, uh, that, you know, uh, you could just mention the plants and then, move, and then move on. But then again, you think, no, this is not a plant. This is a rose, and this is what a rose looks like. This is what it smells like. And in certain cases, this is what it tastes like. Nadim Aslam. His fourth novel, The Blind Man's Garden, is out now in hardback. For more information about it and Nadim's previous books, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. 
You can make sure you never miss it by subscribing on iTunes. It's free, quick, and easy. Just go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.